John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. So if you want to turn there, that's great. Yes, a warm welcome to everyone. It's good to see you all. It is a blessing to fellowship together. I love the passage that Andrew shared because uh, the picture of the oil, that's not really the picture I get when I think unity, but really the unity of of uh, the high priest, the anointing that was upon him, and it's the picture of the, the anointing we have in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who covers us and, and dwells within us and makes us one in God. So in Proverbs 20, verse 6, it says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? So this verse shows us that our view of self is often biased toward the positive. We see maybe the best in ourselves and and the, the shortcomings of other people stand out to us. Um, it means we, we can be, we see ourselves as loyal, but we're fickle. We see ourselves as generous, but we're really selfish. And we see our mistakes as exceptions, not the rule. And we all seem to have a lent, level of mental myopia that, that tends to focus on the good things that we did and, and doesn't really pay attention to how we failed. But uh, praise the Lord. He is the one who has filled us with his love. He's the one who is good. None of us are good. And his love has passed the test. Um, and let's pray as we consider what God is saying. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness to us, for answering prayers. Thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly into your throne room to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would minister, that you would fill us with your presence, and, and the joy of the Lord would be our strength. Please speak to our hearts, Lord, in those areas that we need to see and we need to confess as sin so that we can walk uprightly and do the things that please you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one thing to do well in favorable conditions like, uh, you know, beating your brother or sister in judo. It doesn't mean that you are ready for the Olympics. You have to actually go against top competitors to show that you are worthy of that grand stage and uh, my love if I measure it towards people that I'm in agreement with or people who are kind to me it's really not a good a measure of how sincere my love is right it's against it's with those people that are very challenging very difficult where I can see do I do I really love like God loves because he loved his enemies he prayed for them you think about a car. Before a car is sold, it has this quality checks that have to be done where it's put through uh, many rigorous tests of being in extreme heat, extreme cold. They don't just check the fuel economy at idle, but on the road in different conditions. And uh, it, not, it just doesn't go over smooth ground, but bumpy ground. And there's machines that, that um, simulate bumps so that the suspension's really put through it. And then they're intentionally crashed at speed at different angles to see how the car stacks up in an, in an accident, in a traumatic situation. And they have to go back to the drawing board. If it doesn't perform well, they have to 
check it again, because cars are not made to be shiny and just to be looked at in a showroom, but to be driven in real life. And love, if it's genuine, it needs to endure the test of difficult times and hard hard situations. And that, that will be a good indicator of how genuine your love is. So the question is, will our love, is it, is it like God's love? Do we have love like that? And we're going to be reading through 1 John 3, starting in verse 4. It says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. John began this chapter by saying, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. So this is the standard, right? This is the picture of love. He says, think about the manner in which God has loved us. We've been adopted as his children. And the proper response is we purify ourselves even as he is pure. Now, isn't it cute when you see a kid a son or a daughter who's emulating their parents. Like the son who, who's trying to wear dad's work boots, kind of tromping around the house in these dirty boots, and it's cute. It's not quite as cute when he's using the colorful language his dad uses at a very young age. You're like, oh, you know, that's not, that's not very nice. Um, but as children of God, we spend all of our time together because his spirit is within us. And so the way that he loves, the way that he gives, that should be marked in our lives. We should more and more be looking like him. We will resemble him as we grow in love. So everyone who's born again first needed to repent of sin. You cannot be born again unless you've repented, recognized your sin, turned from it. And it's the law that shows us what sin is. That's how we know what sin is. And verse 4, it defines all sin as lawlessness. So uh, violating God's law, it's wickedness. And to do wickedness is to do evil or wrong. Now you say wicked today and people think you're talking about a musical or something that's really cool. You know, that, that's when you say, oh, that's wicked. You know, it's actually a good thing. But in the Bible, this is a very bad thing. It's lawlessness. It's, it's an offense against God. So when we sin, though other people might be affected, our sin, our offense, is against God, the lawgiver. Here's an example. Say I write a message to my son, and I say, um, on the message it says, and, and so he can read it, and I know that he has it, and it says, while I'm running an errand, feed the dog, and no internet. Okay, very simple. And I come back after an hour, and I come home. The dog is scratching at the door, has not been fed, and my son is just looking at Internet videos. Okay, now the dog is a bit hungry because he hasn't been fed, but the dog's not offended. He's just looking to be fed. He doesn't care who feeds him. But because I am the dad, and I have, give, I have made my will known, then it's an offense against me because I have said what is to be done, and it wasn't done. Sin is against God. And when verse 5, it says, Jesus was manifested to take away our sin, there's no sin in him. When Jesus came, he didn't bring any sin. He didn't give us any bad habits that we have to grow out of. All of that comes from my sinful heart. 
And if we're abiding in Christ, Jesus is not going to draw us into sin, but he is going to lead us away from it in every case. We will go struggles through our flesh, wanting our own way. Our minds can be opposed to God and his ways. We can overcome through the power of the Spirit within us. And I like the NIV rendering of the passage because it emphasizes the present tense of the Greek verb. 1 John 3, 6 says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. So the fact of the reality of my relationship with God is not based upon the fact that I never sin anymore. But the fact when I do sin, how I respond to it, and I seek to avoid sin. So I seek to avoid it, and if I do, I own it and turn from it. So the question is, do I make excuses for my sin? Do I choose to give in to sin or give up and sin? Do I take intentional steps to put it off and tell other people about the struggles that I'm having? Am I willing to humble myself when I sin? If sin ever becomes tolerable in your life to the point that you accept it as part of you, or it's a justifiable area, then it's, it suggests that you do not know God. And that's the thing that John's saying here. It's a hard thing to hear. J- Jesus has removed the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin from our souls. And if we are born again, our opinion of sin is going to change. We'll actually hate sin. We'll despise it and we'll put it away from us. 1 John 3, 7, it's a process, okay? It doesn't happen immediately. But this is a good indicator for people who might think they know God, but actually don't know God, as it says in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Would you agree that liars lie and thieves steal? Well, those who practice righteous righteousness are righteous, right? That's what they do. If you're righteous, you will be marked by righteousness. We're not deemed righteous because we do good things, but because God has made us righteous, we work to be righteous. We seek to have our the outside of our lives uh, reflect what's, true inside of us. And so he urges his children, the little children of the faith, don't be deceived. There's many who claim to know God, but do not know him. There's many claim to be blameless, but they're actually living in sin. As usual, it's important that we take this passage personally. You know, you you hear about something, it could be offensive, and they say, oh, don't take it personal. Well, you should take all the Bible very personally. Take it personally first then you can begin to work on it. If you only read the Bible and go, oh yeah, that guy, I don't even know if he's saved the things he's saying and doing. That's not how it's supposed to be applied. Okay, now if if that plank is now out of your eye and you see someone overtaken with a trespass, that's something a little different. But apply this to yourself. Consider it personally 
Because if these people could be deceived, I can be deceived. You can be deceived. It does us no good to judge others if we will not adhere to the same standard. If my life is marked by something that God calls sin, and I have not and will not repent, it says, we are of the devil. You know, that's, that's the reality, that if this is marked in your life. What did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil. God is greater than all. We're never at the mercy of the devil. Isn't that good? <laughs> Let's turn to John chapter 8, 42 through 45, because we can see here what some of the works of the devil are, and they're laid out in a way that's very clear for us. Jesus was addressing Jews and religious leaders. They opposed him, but they claimed to be children of Abraham and children of God. Right? The Pharisees are like, we're Abraham's children. We're children of God. But their work said something totally different, and Jesus would call them out on that. So again, that's in John chapter 8, starting in verse 42. It says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. How is Satan described here? As a murderer from the beginning, there's no truth in him. He does not stand in the truth. He's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus contended that if these Jews were truly of the father, they would love him. He's saying, if you were of him, you would love me because we're one and the same. They would hear his words. They would understand them and obey them. But those who rejected Jesus, they were not able to listen to his word. They couldn't hear him. I mean, they heard the words that he was saying, but they were not able to lay it to heart. They made a claim of righteousness, but they resisted Jesus. They rejected him. And when he healed someone on the Sabbath day, they plotted to kill him. Right? You see the murder there. They were of the devil. They were not of the Lord. So their desires and their actions showed their true colors. They were liars and hypocrites who justified themselves and would not repent. And so, Jesus was stating what was obvious. Isn't it harsh to say that someone's a child of the devil, like the child of Satan? It's much less confronting to say, oh, that's not of God. But if it's not of God, it's of the devil. When I took biology in school, I learned about dominant and recessive genes. Did anyone do that? You know, he did some studying in biology. One of the examples they give is blue and brown eyes. And um, you either have a big B, that's the brown eye, which is if you have one of two then or both large Bs, you will have brown eyes. If you have blue eyes, you must have two small Bs. And so when there's two parents that come together, they have two genes to choose from and they both give one 
to their child. Now, if you have a brown-eyed child, and he's like, oh, both of my parents have bright blue eyes, you would say, hmm, something's not right about that. You would have a right to question their, their heritage and to say, I don't know that that's true. See, in our case, I have blue eyes. I have two little bees. Laura has brown eyes. Are, are they brown? Would you say brown or hazel? Okay, brown eyes. It's always a, a question, you know. So, Zed, our firstborn, brown eyes. Abel, blue eyes. So what does that say? It says that Laura has a big bee and a little bee. I have two little bees. So there you go. It's, it makes perfect sense. So Jesus is like, hey, you say you're of the Father, you say you're of God and of Abraham, but you hate me and you're trying to kill me. You are not of God. And you can say that definitively, being God. So if someone's living in sin and they claim to know God, they claim they're of God, well, their life is saying what's, your life is saying the truth. We won't be comfortable sinning if we're God's people. Have you ever noticed that? We're not comfortable in sin. We start repenting and being aware of things we realize our sin that other people don't even notice as being wrong because the Holy Spirit's speaking to us. Like someone who has diabetes or high cholesterol that's careful about what they eat, a child of God is careful about the things they hear and they see and the things they feel and the things they think. These are all part of how we express what's going on in our hearts. Now, we live in a day when it's bad form to take a biblical stand on a moral issue. But better than trying to point out to others sin in the world, generally, it's probably a much more profitable application to ask ourselves, do I hate sin? Do I hate it? You know, we're going to avoid things that we hate. When I was a kid, I hated Brussels sprouts. You could not have tricked me into eating one. They literally made me gag. I, I ate them once. Oh, I tried to eat them. Didn't work. I try, and I pretty much ate everything. But I tried another time, and that was it. I was put off um, pretty much for life. So in my little childhood book, it said, Things I hate, Brussels sprouts. It was like the one thing I hated. I didn't. You could not trick me into eating them. Now, if we truly hate sin, we will avoid it. We won't want to dabble in it. I don't have some Brussels sprouts under my desk, and I make sure no one's looking, and, hmm, this is good. No, I don't want them. I don't care if you put butter on them, if you salt them. It's been a while. If one of you guys has a great Brussels sprouts recipe, I will try them. But I just didn't like them as a kid, okay? The preacher Spurgeon, he put his response to persistent, unrepentant sin. And this is what he said. Well, labor under no mistake, sir. He that committeth sin is of the devil. It is no use making excuses and apologies. If you are a lover of sin, you shall go where sinners go. If you had a true faith in that precious blood, you would hate sin. If you dare to say you are trusting in the atonement while you live in sin, you lie, sir. You do not trust in the atonement. 
For where there is a real faith in the atoning sacrifice, it purifies the man and makes him hate the sin which shed the Redeemer's blood. Now, how long has it been since someone called you a liar to your face? You've probably lied since the last time someone did. Like we have deserved rebukes that haven't come, right? There's things that we've done that we deserve to be rebuked of. But here Spurgeon just comes out and says, man, if your life is this way and you say you're trusting God, you're a liar. And so let's own that if it's true. Let's call sin what it is. It's very easy to take a stand against the sin of others, but primarily we're to take a stand against our own sin. That's the point. It's our heart we need to deal with. I can't deal with someone else's heart, but God wants to deal with mine, and he wants to deal with yours. Verse 10, it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Many Christians make the mistake of judging other Christians according to the law of Moses or their own personal convictions. So for them, being a follower of Jesus is little more than new rules to follow. It's just a new law that they've created unto themselves, that this is the way they're going to live. But notice the two things that's, that reveal a person to be a genuine child of God. It says, one who practices righteousness and loves his brother. Righteousness and love are not two opposite ends of the spectrum where you're trying to find a happy medium in the middle. Often those who stress righteousness, they tend to legalism. And those who stress love tend towards liberalism. Isn't that interesting? But in fact, your righteousness is shown by your love. And the more loving you are, the more righteous you will be. They're not in opposition to each other. They actually go together. Righteousness and love. James says, I will demonstrate my faith through my works. And so we can demonstrate our love through righteousness or righteousness through love. Back to the example of the note I gave my son. If my son loves me, won't he try to do what pleases me? If he does what I asked him to do, it would be strong evidence that he does indeed love me because he has put aside his own plan and he's saying, I want to do what my father says. And it could have a whole, a whole bunch of different motives for doing it, but it would point to love of me rather than hatred. A child of the devil, it says, is manifest because he does not love his brother. All of us who were born again today, we were once children of the devil, right? We all were. If you're born again, that means that you have a new parent now. We used to be of the devil because we were sinners in our flesh, but now we have been born again. We are new children of God. So because we have been changed, let us not stand in judgment of others if they're saved or not. It's not for us to decide if they're saved or not saved. God is the judge of that. But let's walk uprightly ourselves. Let's use righteous judgment to examine our own hearts. 
Verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. It is safe to say that Cain was not exhibiting love when he killed Abel. But that's one thing it was not. That was not a loving thing to do. Not a kind or a compassionate thing to do. It was a hateful thing. Notice that John does not say kill, but murder. It's very important. Every murderer has killed, but not everyone who is killed is guilty of murder. In Australia, there's three things that you must prove before a judge to have someone convicted of murder. Because murder has everything to do with intent. It's the motive that's the key. You have to prove that the accused has intended to kill, has intended to inflict grievous bodily harm, and has shown reckless indifference to human life. Those are the legal specifications for murder. Now, there are real, real children of God who have murdered somebody, right? They have committed a grave sin. But Cain's case is an example that's well documented in Scripture where we can see how this has played out. Leading up to Abel's murder, Cain was angry because God had rejected his sacrifice, but had respect unto Abel's sacrifice. And this passage that we're reading in 1 John, it sheds light on the motive of Cain that we don't read in Genesis, because in Genesis 4.8, all it says is, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So it says he killed him, but we know that he murdered him. He planned to do it. He intended to hurt him. And why, we read in 1 John, because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. If you look at Cain's response when he's called on it by God, he was unable to listen to him. All he did was complain that his punishment was too great for him to handle. He's like, oh, my, my punishment is more than I can bear. And God actually warned him before he committed the crime. So it was in his heart, and God saw that. And he spoke to him about it, but he wouldn't listen, and he carried it out. The wicked inside will do wicked things outside. Those who are righteous within will do righteously. Now, wicked people are able to appear righteous. Remember the Pharisees, right? They had, a clean, they had clean clothes. They, they were called rabbi in the marketplaces. And they, they were men of great uh, influence. And people revered them. Judas Iscariot. Jesus said, the one who's going to betray me, I'm going to feed him some bread. And he did that. He gave it to Judas and he ate it. And nobody noticed. They were like, when he says, what you do, do quickly, the disciples are like, oh, yeah, he's going to go feed the poor. Oh, there's provisions that he needs. They didn't put it together that he was actually the betrayer of their Lord. So he looked good. They never suspected him. But he was a child of the devil because there was murder in his heart, right? He was going to betray Jesus. Now, Peter, he denied Christ with cursing after he promised he would you know, I'll die for you. And he didn't. Well, God fulfilled that later. 
So you see the difference. One who was wicked was able to appear righteous, but in the end, he went out and hung himself. He admitted he did wrong, but there was no repentance. Peter, after he betrayed the Lord, after he denied the Lord, it says he wept bitterly. He repented, and we see the end of his life. He was loyal to the Lord to his death. Both Judas and Peter died violent deaths, but one was a child of the devil and the other was righteous by God's grace. Back to 1 John 3, verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hatred is to love less. It's to detest. The world's under the rule of Satan currently, and his aim is to lie, to steal, to kill, to destroy. His aim is to persecute the children of God. And he excels at accusing and slandering and lying and hating God and everyone who's loyal to him. That's what he's about. Now, when we do what's right before him, we will be hated even as Jesus was hated for only doing what was right. And so he says, don't marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. They hated me first. And it really shouldn't be surprising to us. It does surprise me, but it shouldn't surprise me that the very first man ever born of woman killed his brother. I mean, we think of murder as being like way down the line, but really murder is just the the fully ripened fruit of hatred. There was hatred in his heart, and it resulted in murder. God sees it as if there's that seed there. If the seed in the heart isn't dealt with, he knows what the end result will be. And so, if there's hatred in your heart today, we are guilty of murder before God. Just like if you look with lust upon a woman, Jesus said you've already committed adultery. It's like you've done a physical act, well, it's the same with hatred. If there is hatred in our hearts towards a brother, and we think, oh yeah, people are cool, you know, if they're brother. No, hatred leads to the killing of even our brother, the people closest to us. And so it's a very sobering thing. John says, we can know we are born again because we love the brethren. And to love someone is more than just not hating them or not killing them, right? <laughs> like, oh, that guy deserved to die, but I didn't do it. No. That... Loving is actually doing something positive towards that person, not just avoiding killing them or hurting them in some way. To love someone. He says, if you do not love your brother, you abide in death. And if we have the life of Jesus Christ within us, the resurrected, powerful life of Jesus, well, then we should be promoting life, not death. And then John ramps it even higher. He says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if we nurse hatred in our hearts toward others, it makes us murderers before God. You haven't put a bullet in someone's head. You haven't tied them up and thrown them in a lake. But it's just like we've done that if that's in our heart. 
And the fact you battle feelings of hate or the hateful things you've said, you've angrily done something motivated by hatred, it doesn't mean that you are not born again. But hate lived out, it's like a banana that's brown on the outside. You have a good idea of what's inside, right? So the outside should tell you something about the inside. And if there's, if we're living hatefully towards others, well, then that suggests that there's something wrong inside that we need to deal with. We need to confess before the Lord. We have to be willing to honestly evaluate what's going in our hearts. Will you own the fact today that because of hatred, you're a murderer in God's eyes? Are you willing to own that? You may not be hating someone this moment, but are you willing to say, yeah, I've hated, and I deserve the full wrath of God for it? When Cain actually killed his brother with his own hands, he refused to admit that he had done anything wrong. In fact, he said, where's my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Like, I've got no idea. Figure it out, God. Wow. When he did it, he knew what happened. Now, David, on the other hand, he sent a man into battle just hoping he would die. And when he was called out on it, he said, I have sinned. And basically, whatever God does, it's the right thing. Totally different uh, response, right, to being called out. He owned it. He confessed. And so what heart is there in us today? Are we willing to own that there is some hatred in there? Cain complained that God wasn't fair. David, he patiently hoped for God's mercy. Verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's a lot of things in this world that pass for love, but the children of God know genuine love because we've seen it in Christ and we have received it from him. Right? We've seen him demonstrate it on the cross. And that death of Christ on the cross, that is the epitome of the love of God that we still look upon with wonder and think that he would do that for me, that he would shed his blood to purchase me, to be his child so I could be forgiven and live with him forever. John says, because Jesus laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. This is what it means to die to self. It means we choose to die to self, and we see self as dead to us. So how can we lay down our lives for the brethren? Well, it means putting aside your plans because another person needs help. It means doing something that you find uncomfortable because it could provide comfort for others. It means caring about what others are feeling even when you're hurting yourself. It means putting the needs of other people above your own needs, knowing that God is able to meet your needs. It means contributing to others 
instead of just hoping to receive. It means being a good friend to people who have not been friendly to you. That's what it means to lay down your life for your brethren. And you know, it can take an infinite amount of forms. God loves, his love is infinite, and he loves in more ways than you are comfortable with, in more ways than you are capable of loving. He loves in every possible way, for the good of others, taking no thought for self. That is an example of what Jesus has done. So when we die to self, it allows the resurrected life of Jesus Christ to be lived out for others and the glory of God. And so Jesus asks, uh, John asks the question, he says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? When this passage was written, people were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And the persecution took many forms. People would lose their businesses. Children would be orphaned and homeless. People would be uh, taken from their land. They had to flee the persecution. They were cut off from family and friends. They were in prison. They were impoverished. They had real physical needs. Families were displaced. And this shows us that the love of God is not hypothetical. It's not just words. It's not just feelings. The love of God is shown in practical ways. And we're funny. We can, I'll say I'm funny. I can see a need right in front of me. And I say, well, there's so much need in the world. And I have limited resources. Even if I gave all of my resources away, I couldn't possibly make a dent in what's out there. So I won't use this make believe, this, this big overarching need. I'll use that as an excuse not to meet the need that's just right in front of me. That by God's grace, I could meet. Like, how do I know if they really have a need or if I'm just enabling them to be lazy? And so then I'm judging motives. And I'm thinking about, you know, what should I do? Oh, it's not for me to do anything here. Now, John is not advocating communism or socialism or any ism here, or that if you have wealth, you should give it all away. But he's dealing with hearts because he says, how could you close your heart to your brother? That's the problem. People were closing their hearts to one another. They didn't have compassion on people that were hurting, their brother that was hurting. They didn't care to give of their resources to meet a physical need that was in front of them. And if you say, oh, I love God and I love you, and you're not willing to open your heart to someone, if you're not willing to share of what God's given you, how can you say that the love of God dwells within you when Jesus Christ died for you? So he's just bringing it home and he's making it real. And he's saying, guys, if you love, don't just love in word only, but in deed and in truth. Did Jesus die for himself? No. He didn't have to die for himself. He, he died for you. He died for me. He didn't have any sin that needed to be atoned for. He had no vested interest except to do the will of the Father who sent him and who commanded him. And because he loved the Father, he did it joyfully. And that's the way we are to live, obedient to God. So verse 18, my little children... It's really our point of application. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
If there's hate in your heart, it's going to be evidenced by coldness, by indifference, by distance. But love is seen in compassion and kindness, in deed and in truth. Just how murder is displayed, or the evidence of murder is is hatred fully developed, the things we say and do will show if we're truly loving someone or not. Do you find it difficult to say to somebody, I love you? Some people find it hard just to say the words. It's a lot harder than that to love like God loves. It's impossible in our own strength because we can go, okay, see, I did that thing. See, I love people. It's like a, it's like a badge that I can kind of wave around and say, see, I've loved. Well, you know what? You got to keep loving. God's love is active. It pursues people. It doesn't give up. It doesn't stop. It doesn't say, see, I loved you that one time. You know, Jesus showed his love by dying for me, and that's basically it. He just stopped after that. No, he's continued. He loved me before. He's continuing to love me, and he's loved me in how many ways? There's no flower big enough to pull those petals and say, you know, I'll count the ways that he's loved me infinitely, completely, without ceasing. Constant love. Years ago, Gary Chapman wrote a book called Five Love Languages. It was a bestseller, widely popular in Christian circles. And in the book, he highlights various ways that people show love and receive love. And he he broke it into five things. Gift giving, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. At that time, I found the book really useful because it made love a concrete thing. Like, okay, people, people, uh, these, this, these are ways that I can show love to people and realize that these are ways that, um, love can be seen. And as helpful, as insightful as that book might be, it would be unwise to limit myself to my love language, to say, well, I show love like this, and I receive love like this, and to just say, that's it. Because God's love is greater than you. Right? God's love is infinite. And God wants to love other people through you in ways you've never loved someone before. He loves in ways that we cannot. And if we're born again, we'll begin to love people in ways we never dreamed we would love them. In ways that are totally foreign and uncomfortable to your flesh. We can rejoice in. I love that God loves us in deed and in truth. He's affirmed it in his word. And we can always look to Calvary and say, see, he loves me. You can never say, he loves me not. It's always, he loves me. The Beatles sang the song that said, love is all you need. The world sang along. But the truth is, God is all we need. We find love, genuine love in him. An eternal, infinite source of love that flows into us and out of our lives because of the power of God. We all need love, but without God, we cannot know true love can't know genuine love. And God's love is tested and true, and it will endure. The Bible says God's love never fails. It cannot fail. Nothing can separate us 
from our love. So if there's hatred in your heart, let's confess that before the Lord. Let's say, Lord, there has been hatred. Yes, there is hatred. And it's not just because I want eternal life that I'm willing to put it aside, but because I love you, because you've loved me first. It is a sin to hate others, but, you know, it may be more confronting to say that it's a sin not to love others. Let us love, brothers and sisters. If I could invite the worship team to come forward. We will uh, close in a song or two. It's really difficult. Do you you find it difficult to confront people when there's something wrong? It could be something legitimately wrong, something that you know is wrong, but it's still not easy to deal with. Well, praise the Lord. He's willing to gently, graciously talk to us about things in our own hearts that he wants to deal with. And so may we be responsive to what he is saying. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to receive your love and to walk in it and that your love would be evident towards others in our lives. Lord, if there is hatred, we confess it before you. We want to own that. And uh, we are not worthy of your love, Lord, but we gratefully receive it. And we desire that your love would be evident as we live out our days. Lord Jesus, live out your resurrected life through us that you might love others through us in ways we've never imagined or thought possible, that you could change us so much where we have ceased judging one another and we've ceased um, being legalistic about how people need to measure up and, and show that they're deserving of forgiveness or love. Lord, may that be far from us. And may we be those who who are gracious and compassionate and who have depth of affection for one another. Thank you for the unity that we have in Jesus and for the work that you want to do in and through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.